Father, please help us now as we engage with this passage, help us to do the hard work. The writer has promised that it's difficult to explain and so please help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. All kinds of things, information, bits and pieces seem unimportant but turn out to be critical. Uh, uh, Trivia ends up being of incredible importance Uh, the way that the motors are labelled on an assembly line, who cares how they're labelled except when your program drives two and a half thousand bottles of beer off the end. I did that once anyway. Uh, A clue to an Agatha Christie story. Uh, The vase is slightly out of place and that leads Miss Marple to conclude that it's Professor Plum with the candlestick in the conservatory. Uh, A a small piece missing from an engineering project. Uh, A piece of foam the size of a small briefcase caused the space shuttle Columbia to blow up on re-entry. Uh, who'd have thought that such a small thing in such a grand project would matter so much? But it did. As we get to our passage today in Hebrews chapter 7, you may well get that feeling of, uh, okay, but uh, but what's the point? I, I, I don't get it. Well, I get it, but I, wh- why do we need to know? Or maybe even who cares? Because we're told that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And and remember last week in chapter 5, he said this is going to be really, really important stuff. But you read it and go, okay, what does that even mean and so what? And even when you go then and read up every passage you can find that mentions this Melchizedek, which isn't that many, in fact, it's Genesis 14, it's Psalm 110, and it's here in Hebrews. It looks like he's just such a minor character in the Bible. You blink and you miss him. Uh, It's the kind of name that might appear in Trivial Pursuit, the obscure Bible reference edition, if you've ever played that. And yet from last week, we saw that this is going to be the writer's big point, that now he'd hit the adult stuff, This is the time to grow up as a Christian and learn something that's not just baby milk again, like the stuff you might have heard before. Indeed, he says it's this very fact that Jesus has been declared by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek that is actually the greatest plank, the keystone, the foundation of assurance that we belong to God and that he will take us to be with him forever. Remember how chapter 6 ended in verse 19? We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How can it be? How can it be that what appears to be just obscure trivia, how can that be the anchor that will hold us fast in the storms of life and hold us fast in our faith with steadfast assurance that God loves us, that he is for us and not against us, that assurance that we're his and that he is ours? Well, Hebrews 7 is going to explain it. But it's going to take some work because This is the adult hard to explain stuff that he's already warned us that he's been getting to and we're going to have to put our thinking caps on. And so are you ready? Well, he begins by outlining exactly who this Melchizedek was. My guess is is that he knows that the original readers and, and future readers like us might well be thinking when he says Melchizedek, huh? 
Who, who's that? Who's he? We didn't actually read the whole account in Genesis 14, which sets up the situation in which Melchizedek makes his one and only appearance in the Bible. Uh, Abraham, the father of Israel, had just come back from a daring raid on the army of some guy called Ketaleoma, who was kind of a, a Middle Eastern despot. Uh, he, In fact, he'd been running the whole Middle East as the emperor of the first ever superpower. And Ketaleoma had just crushed a major rebellion led by the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah in the land of Canaan. And he had plundered the land. He plundered the whole of the land of Canaan and he'd taken all their goods, their food and their people as captive as slaves. But little did the king Ketaleoma know and all the kings with him know that Abraham's nephew Lot was amongst the captives. Abraham, who's only just come on the scene in Genesis chapter 12, is favoured by God. He'd received promises from God, amazing promises that shaped the whole Bible, promises of land, of countless descendants, of fame. In fact, we're told in Genesis 12 that whoever Abraham blesses will be blessed and whoever he curses will be cursed. And Abraham, a couple of chapters later, he's ticked off that his nephew Lot has been kidnapped. And so with God's promise, guess how it's going to turn out again for this invading armour, despite the overwhelming odds. And so Abraham gathers his entire crew of 318 crack warriors, which is really a pretty small band against the hundreds of thousands that have invaded. Uh, And they turn out to be more than sufficient because God is with them. And they rescue not only Lot, but they recover all of the plunder of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other nations as well. And Abraham's on his way back home celebrating his victory when out of nowhere comes this guy, Melchizedek. It's in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read a bit of it to you. Here's verse 17 of Genesis 14. After Abram returned from defeating Ketaleoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shabbat Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram be blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And you think, okay, well, it's a, it's a really kind act, you know, a random act of kindness. That's good, isn't it? Especially uh, since uh, Hebrews is going to make so much of this guy. But there's not much to the story, is there? This Melchizedek uh, guy happens to be the king of some place called Salem. Uh, he wasn't involved in the fight at all that had just taken place. None of his stuff had been taken, none of his people had been captured, none of his land had ever been threatened, but he comes out as he sees this you know, victorious little group coming back and he gives Abram some refreshments, some bread and wine and, and he also gives him a blessing. Nice guy and all. But even then, Abraham's reaction seems way over the top as he gives this Melchizedek a whopping 10% of everything that he has recovered. Not just his own stuff, 
but Sodom's stuff and Gomorrah's stuff and there's another couple of nations worth of stuff. Pretty good for good old Melchizedek. But, but that's the whole story. But then there's Psalm 110, written a thousand years later by King David, who's king of Israel in Jerusalem, which he has made his capital city, which sits on top of a mountain called Zion, Mount Zion. And if you hadn't noticed the connection, Jerusalem happens to be the same place that Melchizedek was the king of. See, Salem became Jerusalem later. And David writes this song looking ahead to one who will be even greater than himself. And he's, he's the pretty famous king in the Middle East. Uh, a king who is coming who even David himself will call his Lord. So here's the song. It's Psalm 110 if you want to read along with me. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. The declaration of God to my Lord, to my king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will cross leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What's he saying? There will be another king of Salem who, who will also be God's priest a priest forever in some way in, in the pattern of like Melchizedek. But with some very grandiose promises attached that don't sound anything like Melchizedek back then. Uh, this, this one who is coming in the order of Melchizedek is going to bring an end to all sin. He is going to crush the rebellion, the worldwide rebellion against God over the whole world. And he is going to rule in peace forever. They are big promises. Miss Congeniality might well have wished for world peace at the end of that movie, but this man can bring it. And there's two weird things about him in that psalm. Uh, Firstly, he's both a priest and a king, something that no one had ever put together in Israel's thinking before. In fact, only one person in the whole history of the world had ever held both titles of king and priest. Guess who that is? This Melchizedek. And so that's the other odd thing, that he's like someone who's not even an Israelite, someone who's a stranger, who's kind of like an outsider to the nation. And it's the fulfilment of this psalm, Psalm 110, that Hebrews 7 says, not only happened in Jesus, but which is fundamentally important, and without which you would have no hope with God. I would have no hope. With God, And so let's come back to Hebrews 7 where he's going to show it uh, how, and tease out the whole thing apart for us so we can understand it. So come back to Hebrews 7, we'll look at it again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Well, so far so good, that's just the story 
from Genesis 14, isn't it? But first, his name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek translated into English means, king of righteousness. That is, and if his Hebrew-speaking Jewish audience hadn't thought about it, it, it's a compound word, Melchizedek. It's like butterfly, butterfly. Uh, Melchizedek is a, com- a combination. It's a compound of Melech, which in his Hebrew for king, and Zadach, which is righteousness, holiness. We might think it's weird uh, when people na- are named after real-world stuff and things and objects, you know, River Phoenix and Leaf Phoenix. Uh, uh, but in the history of the world, it turns out we're the odd ones, we're the strangers. Uh, and, and you've only got to go back uh, a century or so, back maybe to the late 1800s, uh, when English people did it regularly, especially with girls' names, uh, faith, hope, charity, patience. You know, patience is something we need a lot of right now in the lockdown, isn't it? But Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness. But he goes on in verse 2. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Salem is just a variation of that word that the Jews used to greet others still today. Shalom, peace. That's what you're being wished if someone says shalom to you. Uh, S and SH in Hebrew are, are the same letter. Uh, when you greet someone with shalom, you're, you're wishing them peace. And not just wishing them that they'd have no antagonism in their life towards others, that you know they would not be fighting. It, it's The peace that it's talking about is much bigger than that. What you're doing when you wish someone shalom or Salem is you're wishing them a life where everything is in place, everything is right, everything is in harmony. It's a life that's, that's blessed by God, where God has granted you his peace. And that's the place that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, was the king of. He was the king of Shalom. He was the king of Salem. That is, the king of righteousness was also the king of peace. What else do we need to know about him, according to the writer? Well, verse 2 goes on. He's without father, mother, or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the Old Testament terms, it, who you are connected to is very, very important, which is why so often in the Old Testament that you read, such and such was the son of so-and-so, was the son of so-and-so, and they did something. In fact, when the Israelites came back from exile in Babylon, if any of them couldn't trace their heritage, they couldn't name their family and how they were connected back to the pre-exile Israelites, they were kicked out of the nation. It was that serious for the Israelites. If you couldn't prove you're a Jew, then you're not a Jew. In fact, it's still an issue today after World War II where there was all the stuff that happened in Germany and uh, the horrors of that, and the Jews are very divided today about how you you class your connections back, and, and it's very much a disagreement, and the groups have excommunicated each other. But in Melchizedek's case, we, not only don't we know who his mum and dad were or his grandparents, but Hebrews is alerting us 
to something far more searching that there is absolutely no trace of him anywhere. There's no trace of Salem, the place he's king of. Salem doesn't even appear in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 11, 10, uh, 10, 11. And, and it's king. There's just no way of accounting for him. It's just one of those mysteries of the Old Testament, which it raises, but it doesn't answer. The Old Testament does that quite a lot. And that leads many to speculate, well then, okay, was Melchizedek even human at all? Was he an angel? Was he the angel of the Lord in human form? Which, you know, the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament and, you know, the angel of the Lord talked with Abraham and there was all sorts of... Was he a pre-incarnate Jesus? I don't know if any of those things are right, but anything's possible. But the point is, he, he doesn't fit in. He just appears. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, who is also a high priest of God, with no connections to the family trees of the nations or anything. And because where he comes from is unknown and we never find out if he had descendants or if he died, his his priesthood is unique. No one else has it. His priesthood remains with him. But the point of it all is still coming. And so we read on in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. We read that in the story. Why does that matter? Well, the sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That's how they were paid. Uh, That is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's how great he was. Abraham, Abraham of all people, gave him a tenth. Abraham, the father of Israel, the inheritor of the promises, the one who was going to bring blessing to the world, gave away a tenth to him. It was his grandson Jacob, whose 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, including Levi, whose family would become the priests of Israel. One tribe was separated out from the rest to do that job. Uh, Abraham, who God said holds all the cleaves to the blessings of the world, who is the model of faith, he was the great one, and he was giving up a tenth share of the inheritance of his people to this Melchizedek. And so, in a sense, all of Abraham's descendants have been shorted a tenth of their inheritance. They've they've paid Melchizedek, including the Levites. They they unwillingly gave a tenth to a priest who is greater than them. It's like skinning your kids. Skinning, have you heard of that? S-K-I-N, spend kids inheritance now. That's what the grey nomads are doing travelling the country. Well, they would be if we weren't in lockdown. Uh, So the attitude of spend it all now so that the kids can keep their grubby little hands off it. That's what Abraham did. He skinned his kids, not for selfish reasons, of course, but he spent it so they don't have it to spend. 
But why is it important? It still sounds like trivia so far. Okay, Melchizedek was a great man. He was greater even than Abraham. He was greater even than the Levites who were descended from Abraham. That is, of course, that means he is greater than all the priests. He he is the greatest priest. He's not of the priesthood of Israel and yet he is greater. And why that matters for us has all got to do with what is a priest and why we need this particular one. And so here's, here's where it's all been going. What is a priest and why this one? What's a priest supposed to be for? Well, a priest represents God to the people and represents the people to God. A priest is an intermediary. The priest represents God to the people. It does that by speaking God's word, by giving assurance of God's goodwill and teaching and rebuking on God's behalf. At least that's what they should do. But uh, they also represent the people back to God. That They plead their case to God. They offer the sacrifices for guilt and for thanksgiving and so on. But the point that Hebrews has made repeatedly is that Israel's priests never got the job done. They never got it done. Why? Because they were sinners too, just like the people they were supposed to be mediating for. And the sacrifices that they offered were insufficient sacrifices and nothing ever changed as a result of what they did. And so we need someone better than that. And David, when he wrote Psalm 110, grasped that fact that we need someone like Melchizedek, a a priest who might actually do the job, a, a, a kingly priest, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a priest who who can do it. Uh, and the rest of the chapter really lays out why it is that Jesus, being a priest like Melchizedek forever, beats the Levitical priesthood hands down. It's, it's, the bulk of the chapter is like a, a, like a walk-off in the movie Zoolander or it's the, the power tower from uh, Australian Ninja Warrior where the two best examples are pitted against each other to show which one really is the best. And in this case, it's a battle of the priesthoods and the result is not even close. It's not one second difference. It's not, you know, I just can't turn left at the end. And the, and the writer shows that in at least four ways, Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is infinitely superior. In fact, is the priest that we need. And so here we go. The first reason that Jesus' priesthood is superior is because he brings in a new law. That's the strangest part of the argument. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to go in, into it in any detail. I mean, you can ask questions about it if you want to fill in the comment on our feedback thing. I think it's barneysingleburn.com slash comment. Uh, you can ask questions. You can always give prayer points and things there as well. But but he says a new priest brings in a new law. It's in verse 11. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, so the, the Levite priests you know, ministered and gave the law, 
What further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. And so if Israel's history proves anything, then the law of God never served to do anything for Israel except bring condemnation because they couldn't keep it. And so we need a new kind of law. There's still a law, there's still an obedience to God, but it's a different thing now. But a new priesthood means a new law and a better hope of drawing near to God. And that's going to be explained in the next couple of chapters as we come to that in the next few weeks. But secondly, Jesus' priesthood is infinitely superior to the Levitical priesthood because it's given by promise and it doesn't come by who you're related to. Levites were priests. Why? In fact, every Levite who was ever born was in the priesthood. Why? Because they were sons of other Levites. That you couldn't apply for a job of priest in Israel. There's no CV. You could cut, that would cut it. You you were born into the role, and you get some pretty crappy people in charge when you do things that way. The history of the world has shown anything: kings and president, you know, all kinds of things. So what? Just think of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel, the drunken abusers, uh, horrible, uh, but they were the priests and they were the head priests that Israel had at the time. But the one coming in the order of Melchizedek that David looked forward to was handpicked by God. God swore on oath that he would get the right one. He would give us the priests that we need. And so verse 20. None of this has happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Right? There's not just a new law, but there's a guarantee of a better covenant, a better deal, a better agreement between God and people because God handpicked this one. Right? He wasn't born into the role. Thirdly, Jesus' priesthood is infinitely superior because it's permanent. It never ends. And so verse 23, now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. The Levites, even the good ones, kept dying. They were priests so long as they were still kicking. But when they died, they'd need replacing. Jesus, on the other hand, he's conquered death. He lives and he breathes. He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, pleading our case, interceding with the Father, speaking on our behalf. He's in session with the Father permanently. He is forever, always, permanently before God the Father pleading the case of his people. He's saying, Father, he's one of mine. Father, look out for her. She's one of mine. I, I died for her, Father. Uh, he, he, you know, he needs us right now. Let's be with him. Let's go and help. And death has no hold on Jesus now. His priesthood cannot end. He remains totally 
and constantly involved in our lives. He's shaping us all the time. He's molding us. He always lives to intercede for us. So, so we must be able to rely on him for anything and everything, or particularly everything that he promises. He will bring it. He's not going away. <laughs> He's not going to leave you behind. He, our eternity is secure in him. For Jesus represents us to God and God to us permanently. Fourth way, Jesus priesthood is superior. In fact, it is supreme, not just superior, because it's perfect in its operation. It actually works. It does what it's supposed to do. Jesus perfectly represents God to us in a way that the Levites were completely unable to do because he is God. Verse 26, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to sacrifices every, offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son. God's son, who has been perfected forever. You see the difference? The Levites, the priests of Israel, being sinners as we are, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And they had to keep doing it the next day because, you know what, they'd sin again because they were sinners. But Jesus sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. It's profound. One death. Once offered, once and for all, one sacrifice is able to deal with every sin of his people, past, present, future. It's not like when we sin again, as we're bound to do, that Jesus needs to die again. That's where the Roman Catholic Church gets into so many problems with their view of the Eucharist where they say that that Jesus dies again on the altar every week and he's doing that for your new sins. No, that's not the case. That's just wrong. It's a lie. They say you need to do penance now. You need to work for your salvation because you've still got a debt to pay. Nonsense. Nonsense. Jesus has paid it all. Redemption has been made. The ransom has been paid. It's over. Right? Sin is done. You can know where you stand with God. You can know that you're free of it. Free of the guilt, free of the condemnation and you can be changed. But the Roman Catholic Church just can't grasp that and so it teaches lies instead and it robs people of the very salvation that Jesus came to bring. It denies the gospel. And what it, and what it does do instead is it sets up a new priesthood instead that you need them to plead your case. You need them to offer sacrifices and give you absolution. It's a nonsense. In Jesus Christ, one sacrifice, once for all time, it is finished. It is finished. And thank God that it is. And that's why Jesus' priesthood wins hands down. It changes the law. 
It's given by promise and brings a new covenant. It's, it's permanent and it's perfect. This is the priest that we need and it's not just trivia. See, without Jesus, we have no access to God. We have no way to be right with God. We have no forgiveness from God. For without Jesus, there is no payment. There is no sacrifice. There's no offering which can pay for us helpless sinners to come back and be friends with our maker. Which is why he is the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. He brings peace to our souls. He makes us right before our Father. We have peace with God. We have peace with no bounds. We have peace for eternity. We have one priest and his name is Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. He is the Word from God. He is the way to God who permanently intercedes for us and who has perfectly opened the way to heaven for us. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so all we need to do now is to trust, to trust him. Do you trust him? Is he your priest? Is he standing in your place? Because if he's not, well, then you're on your own. And that's no place to be, is it? You should know that just from lockdown. On your own's no good. Thank God that he has not left us without the one that we need. The one who's in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace. Father, these are powerful things that we've got to grapple with and come to terms with, but we thank you you've not left us on our own. You've not given us a priesthood that's pathetic and can't help us because of the sin of the perpetrators. Uh, you know, that they have as well. We pray that you would help us to know there is someone who stands in heaven who has offered that one sacrifice once for all. Thank you for it. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're with us forever, that you intercede for us, and, and that everything that you have promised can be ours. Father, we pray for the Roman Catholic Church in its error, that you would turn it from its ways. For those who are believers within it, which is few, We pray, please, that they would come out and be separate. We pray that the leaders would repent of their sin and they might turn to Christ or, Father, that you might end it. Father, we pray, please, for your mercy on this world. Help us not to live in confusion uh, and we pray that your gospel might go out from us and from other believers clearly uh, because it is the only way of grace and salvation. Father, have mercy on our world. In Jesus' name, amen.